So, short-term, short-changed, possibly. So, short-termism has become endemic in UK higher education. It's reflected in both the short-term consumer rationality of student choice, individual modules, fast turnaround assessments of customer satisfaction, and in the pressure on academics to rapidly produce grant funding, excellent or world-class publications, and immediate impact. Indeed, to be able to foresee the impact before you even start the project. It's part of a broader short-termism across society in the context of globalised market competitiveness at a time of fast capitalism, where the casualisation of labour can be seen as part of a managerial drive for efficiency, rationalisation and flexibility. Now, we know that academic casualisation has increased over the last couple of decades across the global north quite considerably. Vic talked about the situation in the UK. Um, I found um, something by Douglas talking about American higher education. In 1960, 75% of college instructors were full-time tenured or tenure-track. By 2007, that figure had dropped to 31%. At the time he was writing this, which was 2015, in contrast, 75% were now insecure staff. So 75% of all instructional staff were on contingent or short-term posts. So there's been a dramatic change. Now, Noonan has argued that rather than um, short-term contracts being seen as a preparation for the real thing of the permanent contract, they're now becoming substitutes. Um, there's been a lot of work on academic casualisation in the last couple of years. As Vic said, there wasn't very much a few years ago, but it's begun to, to mushroom. Um, much of that has focused on the impact on academics themselves and the effects of marginalisation, of financial insecurity and so on. There's less, although there are a few studies now, that look at the impact of casualisation on teaching and pedagogic relationships. And it's on that work that we um, are trying to build. Um, so we're um, drawing on our own research that Barbara will say something about shortly, um, and bringing a temporal perspective, drawing on work in the sociology of time to think about the issue of short-termism. So I'm going to say something now about the sociology of time and, and that work on short-termism. I'll then pass over to Barbara, who will say a little bit about our study and some of our data around short-termism teaching and knowledge. So we've kind of separated our work into two areas, stuff on teaching and knowledge, and then I'll take over again to look at the impact on pedagogical relationships and finish off. So, a temporal perspective. It can help us to denaturalise and problematise temporal structures, cultures and practices. Felt has argued that we need a chronopolitical analysis, a politics of time, to understand the changing temporal regimes of higher education. And we suggest that short-termism is particularly ripe for this at this point. We draw on Barbara Adams' groundbreaking work in the sociology of time, in which she articulates the importance of a, a temporal perspective that recognises both the social construction of time and its complexities. Now, she talks about the timescape um, and uses this concept, a cluster of temporal features that are each implicated in all the others, but not necessarily of equal importance. And the kinds of features she's thinking about are things like um, 
time frame, temporality, tempo, the duration, the sequencing, and so on. And timescapes are multidimensional. They encompass different and overlapping temporalities. Now, she also talks about the five C's of industrial modernity. And I think all of them are actually familiar to academics in, in today's universities. So the creation of time to human design, or clock time, um, which is the most common way we tend to talk about time, I think. The commodification of time, time is money. The compression of time, the way it's speeded up. The control of time, to ensure efficiency and productivity and so on. And the colonisation of time, the way particular temporal rationalities dominate and colonise other um, aspects of life. Now, um, Barbara Adam herself drew on Marx for some of her analysis. And Marx um, talked about how time is everything. Man is nothing. He is at most the incarnation of time. Quality no longer matters. Quantity alone decides everything. Hour for hour, day by day. And Lukács saw this fragmentation of labour as also necessitating the fragmentation of the subject. And as you'll see from there, it's the subjects of la labour must likewise be rationally fragmented. And Felt has talked about how time for academics is now hyper-fragmented um, because of the, the temporal inconsistencies that academics are dealing with in the new temporal order of higher education. Now, it's Barbara and I don't often draw on Marx and, and Lukács and, and so on in our work, um, but it seems to me that we tend to forget that academic work is waged labour. It's not about doing it for the love, even though everyone thinks maybe we should spend much of our time um, working way over the hours that we're paid for because we love it. And I think sometimes it's useful to, to have a bit of analysis of wage labour to, to remind us that um, academia fits within this as well. Social acceleration, or as Sue Clegg has talked about, the increased intensity and tempo of academic life is a key part of this transformation. And technological developments have led to what Hassan has called network time, which is a timescape that has open-ended acceleration potential. And there, Sebelis has talked about um, what gets lost in this environment and how short-term views rule. The fragmentation of research into time-limited discrete projects um, has been talked about as project time by someone whose name I really don't know how to pronounce, Yiljoki, or something like that. It's Y-L-I-J-O-K-I. If anyone knows her <laughs> and can correct me, um, I think it might be a Finnish name. Um, you say that for me? Uliyoki. Thank you. I will try and remember that. Uliyoki. Okay, well, she's done some really interesting work on this idea of project time, which she says, just like clock time, it's linear, decontextualized, standardized, measurable, predictable, with a fixed start and end date. It's cost-efficient, valorizes speed, and its short-term time frame inevitably leads to short-term workers. And again, this will be familiar to anyone who's been involved in contract research. 
And she contracts, con contrasts project time with what she calls process time, where you take the time you need to do the task in hand, as opposed to following some predetermined schedule. And she argues that project time has those features of commodification, control, colonisation and compression articulated by Adam. And that any activities, scholarly work that falls outside project time is wasted time, provoking questions, is it worth it? Can I afford to spend my time on this? Is the time is money, again. She argues that project time glorifies new virtues in academic research, such as economic rationality, instrumental orientation, efficiency, accountability, short-termism and speed. And it's in conflict with the kind of um, view of academic research as requiring long-term concentration. Um, and there, Uliocki, did I get that right? Thank you, yes. Um, an example of what she talks about. Now, she also says that this project time conflicts with, with teaching, uh, which it certainly does. Again, for anyone who's worked on contract research projects, they'll be aware of that. Um, because both have their own temporalities. Of course, teaching can be seen to um, also have short and fixed time frames of classes, semesters, assessment deadlines, and, and so on. But not all teaching and learning is quite so short term, with doctoral study being a minimum of three years and often considerably longer. Um, but which is also much longer than most short-term academic contracts, and that raises issues for students as well, as we will see. Um, Noonan also argues that academic capitalism, um, money time is in conflict with thought time, and that actually what we lose out is time to think in this. At that point, I'm going to hand over to Barbara. I'll move the slide for you. You press the right one. Okay. <laughs> okay, so um, I won't spend too much time talking about the methodology here, but we are uh, happy to talk more about it in the, uh, in the question time if we uh, have time. Uh, but just to uh, sort of flag up that, the, uh, that this, uh, the findings we're talking about are based on email interviews with 20 academics, uh, mainly, uh, mainly white, mainly female, and mainly about three quarters, 40 and under. Um, so you have a bit of a, a sense of, uh, of the academics. Um, all on fixed term, um, part-time, um, and or hourly paid uh, contracts. Um, and one of the stipulations was that uh, we wanted to have uh, people that also had teaching as part of their uh, contracted duties. Uh, because, um, as uh, Carol has mentioned, we were specifically interested in how contract status um, has an effect on teaching and pedagogical relationships. So I'm going to talk uh, briefly here about uh, some of the ways in which the participants talked about uh, the uh, the impact of their contract status on uh, the the t the knowledge that they were able to uh, um, uh, uh, teach in their in their class in their classes and um, the nature and the quality of their teaching in this way. Um, as we've already discussed, um, there are um, there's uh, an increasing amount of scholarship on the the time pressures of academia. And, 
and it seems from our participants that um, that uh, the uh, some of the extra pressures that they have mean that these pressures sometimes get intensified um, uh, uh, in in uh, various different ways. And one of the ways uh, in which they talked about it was uh, literally having. Uh, uh, a very, very uh, minor or compressed uh, time uh, of, of being able to prepare for their uh, their sessions before their teaching, even more than what would be normally expected in a time-pressured environment. Uh, sorry, I'm not very good with these. <laughs> so uh, this is Olivia, who says, for, ex uh, for example, she, um, I was not told I was convening an additional module until I arrived back this week. There was no forewarning or handover or time to prepare, and many, many colleagues in my position have experienced similar issues. Um, I haven't got this on the slide, but um, Yvonne also uh, in our study, these are all pseudonyms by the way, said that she didn't, usually didn't know until the week before teaching began uh, what modules would be offered um, to her um, and um, and this was because she said she's not usually considered for work until after uh, full-time members of staff have had their their teaching allocations which means as you can see and the sort of like a uh, the sort of time pressures are intensified for people who are kind of last on the list as it were uh, we had an, uh, another participant, Lewis, um, he had worked for 10 years in the same Russell Group University and he talked about the, uh, the difficulties, this is Lewis here, I don't know how many of you can uh, read this but again hopefully we can uh, circulate uh, some of this uh, material as well. Um, he said that uh, the difficulty for him is that he goes from contract to contract uh, that the contracts typically run out at the end of August and the new contracts are supposed to start in September but um, usually that he might be he might be having a, a period where he's only just gone for the interview got a formal job offer right at the beginning of, the, of September and he's not uh, in a position to or is not willing to sort of like bet that he will be successful in order to start preparing for his lectures um, so therefore, he has to um, he has to sort of like start at a, from a very short uh, very short notice, if and when he's um, given the go ahead, and um, of course that uh, impacts on how he feels. You know, he said they're not the the materials not as good as I would like it to be, and of course uh, this continual issuing of contracts takes uh, a lot of time and an emotional labour. Um, uh, and energy for the uh, for the staff involved, and also for the university administrators as well. Uh, okay. um, and uh, Olivia here explains uh, uh, she feels that it's a lot of extra time taken every semester. Uh, each time a contract is started, ended, or adjusted. It's very stressful and leads to all sorts of complications and confusions in departments. And, um, and that a knock-on effect is, uh, of uh, those sort of confusions was that she only found out about one lecture she was supposed to give 25 minutes before it was due to start on the other side of the campus. Um, and thankfully she said she, she was prepared for that. But then there was quite a few issues of this kind of uh, uh, ultra short-termism, as it were. Um, 
and uh, um, the uh, Julia underneath here um, also explains how uh, sometimes the way uh, the way uh, modules are organised. Um, if you're a contract staff, you are less likely to have control over the content of the course. She was talking about at the university where she worked uh, and the module that she was teaching on, uh, uh, because there were quite a few tutors teaching on this, the idea was that everybody stuck to the same rigid teaching plan that uh, the module coordinator set. Um, but uh, she uh, she talked about how often uh, the uh, this uh, this plan was only given to her um, maybe late at night the night before the seminar so um, or even sometimes the the morning of the seminar and so she felt that she uh, wasn't able to really um, ask uh, address any of the questions that students might have as to okay what's coming up on this course when are we going to do XYZ because she didn't know about it herself um, and she felt it was um, it was sort of eroding the only the tiny amount of autonomy or agency she felt she had to bring into the sessions where if she did have enough time she would like to sort of like make a you know to, to plan the way that she would be able to give over that content but um, the the lack of time to do this meant that she she felt that she didn't really have any time to inject um, uh, any of her own knowledge or expertise in there. Um, and she talks about something that came up a lot about the uh, embarrassment of uh, uh, of how this might look to students and to um, other academics. And uh, we we look elsewhere about the the emotional work done to try and sort of cover up or cover for the institution in um, in relation to this embarrassment. She says it's it was incredibly embarrassing. It's unprofessional to tell students why you do not know this information. But avoiding telling them meant that you looked like an incompetent teacher. So that was something that, uh, that came up quite a lot. Okay, and the, uh, um, there, was, there was lots in the data about uh, participants' desire to be able to give uh, high-quality teaching. Um, but they often um, also talked about, as well as the lack of time to properly prepare the teaching, there was also uh, concerns about a lack of opportunity to reflect on their teaching and to develop it for the future. Uh, so uh, Jennifer explains here, I feel that each year I'm teaching something different and it takes so much time to prepare something of good quality that I know what I do isn't always my best and it would be better if I had the chance to hone it. I feel exhausted by everything being new all of the time. And uh, there was also uh, issues around uh, being able to uh, perhaps uh, uh, update or uh, look at uh, sort of challenge conventional teaching in a way. Uh, Jennifer, for example, talks about how uh, the sociological uh, theory on the module that sh uh, she was on uh, was, uh, in her words, the usual dirt time and his white man gang. <laughs> she feels that she wasn't able to uh, to do much to sort of diversify uh, and change the uh, change the course. There's no space, she says, to develop or ha or have real changes. And uh, Jane as well um, uh, again talks about not being able to reform the content or. Um, 
or be able to uh, uh, to change something that someone else uh, uh, was uh, uh, had already started. Okay, uh, as uh, as Bianca uh, says here, in relation to the investment or uh, inability to invest in the teaching. She says, I'd love the opportunities to think of highly engaging and innovative approaches or sources to have in class every week, but sometimes, not always, there just isn't time to do this, and I don't feel students get the best of my teaching. Uh, so, um, as Gutterberg and Hornberg notes, uh, social acceleration means that knowledge is deemed out of date and loses its validity far more quickly than it, um, than it has in the past. Uh, if that's the case, then it's even more important that academics have what Noonan calls thought time. Uh, and uh, it goes uh, goes back to what we're talking about, how the, there's pressures uh, for everyone. But uh, I hope this is this has shown at least the beginnings of how these pressures and uh, these issues are intensified by the particular uh, specific uh, issues faced by contract staff. And I'll pass on to uh, Carol now to talk about the pedagogical relationships. Thank you. So when we asked participants um, if they thought that the nature of their contract impacted on their pedagogical relationships with students, several of them responded negatively. No, it doesn't. You know, I, I, the quality of my relationships are, are just the same. Um, Bianca, however, said... I'd say it doesn't enhance it, but then perhaps it's not noticed that much. More a sign of our hard work than anything else. So again, stuff kind of covering for the institution, which as Barbara says, we've, we've written about elsewhere. Um, Anton had a, a full-time fixed-term contract, um, and he said it didn't impact on the nature of the interaction, but it did on its extent and frequency. Um, and explains why there, that he simply wasn't available. Now, again, that could apply to um, people on, on permanent contracts um, as well. Nadia here saying she's not convinced, she, she doesn't, or she hoped it didn't have an impact, but actually she thought subconsciously it probably did, just because she was so stressed about the financial insecurities and so on, um, that she thought it probably did impact on her relationships with students. Others were very clear that casualisation impacted negatively, with Poppy declaring, supervision in public places, limited time in the week to support. I certainly can't see any ways that it improves student experiences. A recurring theme in the data was the lack of time and opportunity to get to know students. Now in part because of high student numbers, and again that will affect most academics. Um, but there were additional issues for casualised academics. So there's Olivia talking about the problem with not getting a contract means she's not on the university systems, which means she can't see who her tutees are and get information about them and can't contact them. Um, another issue was lack of office space and lack of paid time to actually see students. And you can see this here with Bianca, who holds her office hour in Costa Coffee on campus which in the run-up to Christmas was busy, noisy, and the opposite of private. Now, Julia, who um, spoke about seeing students also in the corridor or in campus cafes and raised issues about lack of confidentiality, 
went on to explain that module tutors were expected to run an office hour. Now, she was a module tutor, but she said she was advised it wasn't expected of her because it wasn't part of her contract and she wasn't paid for it and she had no office. But this is what she said. I felt pressure to, as every other module tutor, they were permanent full-time members of staff, offered this to students. I didn't want to be seen by students as not providing them with opportunities to discuss their concerns. In the students' eyes, I was no different from other tutors. I was still responsible for teaching them a module, marking their work and supporting them academically. The only difference was my contract. Now, others attempted to fit this individual support into paid contact time, reflecting is how time is money, not only for the managerial university, but also for individual casualised academics who, in many cases, are working in more than one place, doing more than one job as well. Both Kathleen and Sally described finishing classes early so that they could see students individually in the end of the class time. Um, and there's Sally explaining that she did that, um, but that students really didn't understand why she couldn't offer them an office hour. Um, and again, the problem of lack of private space. And Jane, I don't have an office. I'm not paid to hold office hours, so I don't. And face-to-face -face interactions with students simply don't exist. So, sorry, I've lost where I am. Sorry, I will find where I am in a minute. All right. Okay, yeah, the, the final really key issue um, that was commented on by many of the participants was that of continuity and lack of continuity that short-term contracts inevitably mean. Um, Jack said both sides in invest less in that relationship. But he then goes on to say, actually, I probably meet with students more because he needs to impress if he's going to get another contract. And this was a dilemma for many of the participants in our study. They often felt they had to work harder and do more because otherwise they wouldn't be employed. But others felt that lack of continuity and the uncertainty involved in not knowing that contracts would be renewed impacted negatively on pedagogical relationships. Um, and Jennifer said this is maybe something that the TEF could speak back to. And there she's talking about the importance um, of that. And then Zoe and Julie both talking about the problems of students not having personal tutors that go all the way through their degrees or even all the way through a module or a course. And the anxiety that this then provokes among students. So at the bottom there, Zoe is talking about how one of her students asked, if she was going to be there for the whole year because she's had three tutors so far that, and Zoe wasn't able to give her an answer. And similarly, Julie, um, one class sought 
repeated insurance from her that she wouldn't leave midway through the semester. And this is because they'd had four different tutors in one module in a short space of time in the previous year, which they felt had impacted negatively on their progress. And another issue that came up from several of our participants was students asking them to supervise master's or PhD study. And of course, the participants had to say, can't do it. They weren't going to be there. Their contract wouldn't last long enough. <coughs> and so Kathleen kind of summed up the situation. Now, supporting students with <coughs> um, special um, or specific needs was something that came up in the study as well. And <coughs> here we have Jane, Serena and Bianca. <coughs> Excuse me. I've got some water. <laughs> Not helping that much all talking about um, the problems that they have, getting information about specific students. <coughs> and it was really summed up here by Olivia. So to conclude, before I lose my voice completely, whilst at least some of the issues raised by the participants in the study will be very familiar to academics regardless of their contractual status, and everyone will, we're sure, be aware of some of the difficulties created by the conflicting temporalities of higher education, we're in no doubt that these are made far worse by the short-termism that casualised academics on temporary contracts and their students have to deal with. We know from our previous research, and VIX too has clearly highlighted this, that academic staff are shortchanged by short-termism, to come back to our title. Our projects suggest that students are too. Now, I don't know if people saw the leaders' survey that's conducted by the Times Higher on an annual basis, and it was published in the last month or so in the Times Higher uh, magazine. And they interviewed 200 um, leaders of universities um, in various countries across the world. Um, and they asked them about casualisation. And 46% of leaders in their study thought that a greater proportion of academics would be on short-term or casual contracts by the end of the next decade. But there were real differences between countries. In Australia... 69% thought casualisation would increase. That's work for you. <laughs> um, in North America, 65% thought casualisation would increase. But in the UK, the corresponding figure was only 8%. And in the UK, 72% of the leaders who responded said they thought there'd be a shift to more stable employment practices. 
Now, I find that fascinating. Is it that action by the union, UCU and academic staff themselves, has actually made some vice-chancellors rethink it? Is it perhaps the TEF causing anxieties about teaching quality and maybe universities are getting wind of the fact that maybe students are shortchanged in this and this isn't the way to go? I'll leave it to you. Thank you.